The production of this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the interviewees and do not necessarily represent the official views of the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families, or those of the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Taslahen inim lautiwa, inim winitwas atitwatit, inwas nimipu ayat, soyapo Ty Simpson. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I am Ty Simpson, and I am a social change advocate at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. At the Coalition, we hosted a short series of podcasts to intentionally center the work of Indigenous leaders and tribal community members as their work and experience relates to domestic violence victim service provision. The creation of this podcast grew from our participation working with a Family Violence Prevention Services grant. Our role was to facilitate connections with three tribal nations and one urban indigenous community to understand how these communities are impacted by domestic violence. Podcasting is an avenue of storytelling, and storytelling is an important cultural dynamic for many indigenous people. Upon reflecting on what tools and resources would best serve and represent the indigenous community in Idaho, we made the decision to pivot from a print campaign to podcast. The interview questions are based on the goals and objectives of the Idaho Thriving Families Work Plan, as well as from input from Tribal Site Victim Service Program directors. These are Coeur d'Alene Tribe Stop Violence Program, directed by Bernie Lassau, Sart, Nez Perce Tribe, Uyit Kimti, New Beginnings Program, directed by Carrie Picard, and the Shoshone Tribes and the Shoshone Bannock Tribes Victim Assistance Program, directed by Audrey Jim. The interview participants were recommended by each of the tribal site coordinators or other service providers in those communities. The series of questions specifically address experiences by each interviewee. In addition, the questions incorporate the themes from the listening sessions conducted in year three of the Thriving Families Grant. I'll outline the connection between the themes and the guest as we move along the series. Lastly, the questions were also organically augmented to allow the conversation to move along freely. Our aim as part of the grant and within the podcast was to address the following goals. Improve systems and responses to abused parents and their children from underserved populations through the integration of a comprehensive anti-oppression and social equity framework to achieve positive change in state governmental systems that impact abused parents and their children exposed to domestic violence. Build capacity of the demonstration sites and statewide service providers to better serve parents and children impacted by domestic violence. And enhance evidence and practice-informed strategies, advocacy, and interventions for children and youth from underserved communities exposed to domestic violence. I'd like to explore a bit of background for you. While well-intentioned, this project had some harmful consequences and produced some important conversations to be had by the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence Team. We had to ask ourselves, how do we carry out grant work that is in partnership with tribal communities? What were the problems faced in our project? How do we make changes for future collaboration with tribes? The methodology we used was initially harmful. The questions used in the listening sessions were also harmful. And we didn't build a safe or secure place to engage in these conversations, nor did we provide aftercare. We are learning in our work that we don't invest in the storied connections and experiences of our people to inform best practices. We talk a lot about evidence and practice-informed strategies without engaging the voices of folks most impacted by violence. Your stories are valuable.
My name is Arabelle Moody, and I am an enrolled member of the Nespers tribe. I descend from um, various bands, including Chief Joseph, the Palouse Band, Chief Lawyer, a lot of different chiefs that kind of played different roles throughout history. I invited Atta to our podcast to share a unique story that is often overlooked when it comes to victim services provision. Atta is two-spirit. Atta's pronouns are she and hers. I noticed in my time at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence that we don't have intentional spaces for two-spirit folks in our grant work. This was my small attempt at doing so, although we have so much more work to do. Atta is a practitioner of Nimipu culture and is one of our language keepers. As a reminder, access to ceremony and elders as mentors are Idaho Thriving Families grant themes, both of them couched on these cultural practices. I was raised in the Presbyterian Church at Meadow Creek. And in our church, one thing that I really um, respected is that we incorporated a lot of our cultural concepts into our teachings. So we learned from a very young age how to speak our traditional Nimipu language, Nimipu Timt. I held a very close relationship with my ally, my paternal grandmother, the late Mary Jane Moody. I have a big family, both on my mother's side and my father's side. I basically was raised in that setting, but I was raised in in Lapway, and I've lived here for um, the majority of, of my life. I attended the Lapway school systems. I went to Haskell Indian Nations University, Northwest Indian College, and Lewis Clark State College. So I'm very rooted where I come from. I'm hoping through sharing my experience and sharing my voice that I really want to really drive the message home that, especially with Native people, our reservations, you know, in retrospect, that they were something that was forced upon us. I think that it is now, you know, it, it's, it's a root of who we are. And I think that through this education portion that I don't want to uproot myself to heal. I want to do the healing here at home, and I'm hoping that my voice can help shed light to all those who provide resources to us as Nimipu. And aside from my tribe and aside from my family, my people are also those of the um, LGBTQ2S community. I am Two-Spirit, but for a lack of universal understanding of that term, I like to always clarify that I am transgender female. That is me. Thank you so much. It's important. I think in this work that I'm doing to really honor and center the way that we identify. I think that what we've seen as a result of settler colonialism is this tendency to want to streamline and homogenize folks without taking into consideration how diverse and how unique we each are. Even within a Native American community, even within the Nimipu community, how diverse we are. And so I certainly appreciate your contribution as a two-spirit voice. So part of this work in addressing the needs of survivors of violence is also about what and who are people seeking for healing. So I'd like to hear more about the cultural integration of Nimipu ways with your church identity and what does the healing space look like in that sense? So one thing I want to you know make clear is that I was raised in that setting through attending college and learning you know to have my own thought process and to not be dictated by any religion, by any religious leader. 
regardless if it was traditional or non-traditional. Once I started learning the history, well, I was at Northwest Indian College, I really learned about how it came to be here on our reservation. And whereas I didn't know that growing up, I mean, I kind of had a really basic understanding of that, but it was through attending college that I learned more about all of the federal Indian policies that we were subjected to and the forms of assimilation tactics that were forced on us. So I like to clarify that although I was raised in that setting, I really have kind of broken away from any form form of organized religion. I feel that I'm more spiritual than anything. I'm more spiritual than religious because I feel that, and especially as a trans woman of color, especially in, in the Christian setting, that was something that was typically shunned. And so I don't really feel that there was a lot of healing there. I think if anything, the most healing that I received in that space, in my church or our family's church, was just the unconditional love for my family. So it wasn't necessarily Bible teachings. It was more or less that act of coming together of showing unconditional love. And I think above all, it was through language and through traditional language, Nespers language, and learning how to pray for my grandmother. I think that was something that connected me to my creator, to Hanyawat. And I've never let organized religion dictate my relationship to my creator. I've let my heart lead that connection. After listening through my discussion with Atta, I realize her message is for both our own people and the service providers who seek to work with our community. There are a lot of examples and anecdotes that may not apply to you directly. They may not be relatable, but I encourage you to critically reflect here. What are the parallels between your service provision and medical care provision? What cultural lens do you use in your advocacy? This conversation with Atta is robust and doesn't afford much for my commentary, which I'm grateful for. But this is a conversation that requires each provider, educator, healer, or policy policymaker to dig deep about how we're addressing marginalization, access, and inclusivity. Going back to the language, something that I've always tried to learn, and I'm still learning, and I've always tried to share with my nieces and nephews, that brings healing in itself. Because regardless of the religion, regardless of, you know, cultural practices, everything is tied together through our Nespers language and through the language and learning about the root words, learning about the meanings and translations, you begin to self-identify with pride, courage, and you gain strength from that. Because I've kind of been so focused on my professional side of life and, and working in human resources, I feel like the language is calling me back. And I think now more than ever, I need to immerse myself back into the language because that's going to bring me more healing and more understanding and hopefully lead me to teaching it eventually. That's so lovely. It resonates so deeply with me for a couple of reasons, not just because we share the same indigenous nation and the same language, but because I felt that same energy behind rejuvenating and revitalizing our language that I feel so much more connected to who I am as a storyteller, who I am as a woman, because I have this language that's also tied to our land. So that healing space that you speak to through our language, that language is healing, that is so resonant. And I really hope that in this work, especially for non-native of service providers that, you know, they create a space that also incorporates our language, right? Like, can things be in both English and in Mimiputimt if they are operating on the ancestral homelands of the Nez Perce tribe? Or, you know, when you walk into a space, are office buildings or doors things labeled with some of our language? Like, where we know that we are seen and that we are heard because our language is also 
apparent in the space. I think it's an intentional step towards being inclusive if these agencies can really incorporate our language as part of their practice. And so for you to say that healing is in language, I absolutely agree with that. This may or may not be obvious to folks, but embracing our languages is cornerstone to us as Indigenous people. Our languages survived the most horrific and violent assimilation, and yet we still have them. In my generation of activists and organizers, we celebrate whether we speak one word or 1,000 words of our indigenous languages. We believe our ancestors can hear them. It is how we honor our ancestors and their sacrifices. How could this look for you as advocates and service providers? Use imagery and names in both English and the indigenous language of the territory you're occupying. Ata speaks more to this. Seeing and hearing our language demonstrates one facet of understanding and solidarity. In victims' assistance spaces, it's a way of demonstrating that we are safe and we are welcome. Ata is part of this work. Did some listening sessions in Nimipu country, the Coeur d'Alene tribe, the Shoshone Bannock tribes. And one of the themes that emerged from those listening sessions is that we find healing and that we find uh, almost as if we would rather reach out to our elders and the matriarchs in our community before actually seeking a non-native Western agency for help, right? We don't go to victim services, we'll go sweat instead. What are your thoughts about how we are creating community and healing spaces for ourselves or even seeking help when we are victimized by violence? In preparing for this and looking at what the topic was going to be about as far as healing and as far as the different experiences that we as Native women experience daily, especially as a trans woman of color, a two-spirit. This is where marginalization comes into play. And it's almost like, and the way I've always explained it is that you look at us as Native people, you know, we're marginalized. We were placed on these reservations to live a sedentary life, whereas before we were migratory, we traveled with the seasons. We knew the land. We knew where to travel during each season for sustenance. Being on the reservation, learning the, this new way of living, of, of farming, that took away from us, that marginalized us, it, it placed us in this tiny space to exist. So you think of that as just as natives. Now you look at the two-spirit community or, you know, what, what's, what's widely known as initially the LGBT community. Now that's another form of marginalization within a marginalized group. And up until recently, my community, the transgender community, has kind of almost been ostracized from lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities. So I look at that as being even more marginalized. And in speaking about this and in sharing my story, I can only speak from my own experience. I can't speak for, you know, everyone else's. We have a different journey. But it is a struggle in being quite honest. Like our sweat house, you know, I, I obviously don't want to go sweat with men, even though biologically, genetically, I was born male. I don't identify as male, but I don't want to go sweat with men. 
And again, I don't want to make women, cisgender women, women who were born biologically female and I identify as female, just clarifying what cisgender is. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. And so I find myself placing myself in the space of, I love to sweat. I used to love to sweat. I would always sweat when I was a kid. Sometimes it would be with my dad or sometimes it would be with my mom. But I remember that feeling of being reborn, of singing and praying within the sweat house. And I think in becoming one with my truth and living and owning my space, I still find myself isolating myself from those traditional places of healing. And aside from just Christianity, I don't want to demonize any organized religion. I don't want to demonize Christianity. I don't want to demonize Longhouse. But I think the bigger picture, and especially that needs to be heard at the tribal level, is that as a transgender woman of color, I can attest to the form of discrimination. It's not a result of Christianity. It's a result of Western societal norms. We're taught at a young age that you're a boy, you play with boy toys, you wear blue, and you have short hair. You're a girl, you play with Barbies, and you wear pink. And I think aside from Christianity, it's that Western societal black and white mold that we're kind of forced to fit in. That's what we understand and what we learn growing up in our communities today. Again, getting back to language and getting back to reaching out to other tribes where their languages were written and where it was well documented to kind of piggyback off them. Because even though we're not the same tribe, we have that same concept of being one people, of everyone playing a role. Nespers language, it was never a written language and it contained many dialects. And I look at the word that is used to describe transgender people, it's teammates. In the dictionary, the way that that is translated is to someone who cannot hunt. And so I think of that as, you know, that's something it was kind of like condescending. And I think that that was impacted by Western societal norms. And so I think that doing more research, I could hopefully find a different term that we use because that, again, would bring healing through language. But it also, I think, in getting back to your question about, you know, those spaces of healing, I think that maybe starting a two-spirit sweat group or maybe, you know, things like that, all-inclusive, where, you know, there is no shaming of you identify this way, I'm going to respect you this way, we're going to sweat and we're going to heal together. And I think removing that stigma from our people and just empowering everyone just to be happy in their body, to be happy with themselves and to not feel that they don't deserve to be here, that they don't deserve to heal and that we repatriate that traditional mindset of we are one people. We're Nimipu. Oh, I love that so much. I'm over here screaming on the inside at the idea of having a sweat or a healing space that is inclusive of our two-spirit relatives. I absolutely believe in that destigmatization. I think that we have an opportunity now, this day and age, to really explore how our old ways can intersect with this new way of being in this new world with our Soyapo, our non-native neighbors. And I think that folks who are, you know, speaking up and having a voice in this this work can absolutely do that, which is again why I appreciate that you're you're offering this insight, Atta. 
One of the words that comes up a lot in this federal grant work and in anti-violence work in general is this idea that we are from an underserved community. I mean, you've touched on it a little bit with regards to marginalization, but what is your you know, physical and emotional reaction to this idea of being underserved? Right, I almost feel like, I'll share with you a little bit of my reaction before I take your insight on that. Underserve or service sometimes puts fault somewhere, right? Like somebody's responsible for another group of people. But in my brain, colonization really took a lot of our liberation from us as indigenous people. It took a lot of our freedom and our access away from us, whether it be to land or to language. And then now we're labeled underserved as us, almost the, the colonial system took all of these things away and then told us that we're underserved. You know, it's almost like this, ironic circle that we're in, but what is your reaction to being labeled underserved? So I worked in the Indian Health Service through a 638 operation. So basically the Nespers tribe, they own and operate their clinic. And so I worked in the human resource department there, probably I would say collectively maybe six or seven years. It was in my time there that I learned the recruiting process and talent acquisition. When I hear underserved, I see that the struggle we have to maintain that continuity of care because of tribal politics, because of not being able to compensate at the private sector, that they're able to compensate these physicians and these practitioners, psychiatrists, the psychologists, whether it's the medical, dental, behavioral health field, we're not able to compete with them you know, for the most part. So I'm not saying that any of the providers now, they're not qualified. All I'm saying is it's a lot more challenging for us to recruit on our reservation with someone who's going to have that cultural understanding of who we are as a people. So in that sense, I can see how we are underserved because our pool of providers, when we're recruiting them, is a lot smaller than those in the city. So they have a bigger pool, all of these professionals who, who can give them the best service. And we do have a lot of outstanding providers at our clinic and both of our clinics. I'm thankful for that. In the sense of my community, the Two-Spirit community, and especially in, in rural Idaho, we are underserved, trans women especially. If I was going to go to a provider there and seek guidance on trans health and of developing a path of you know transitioning fully, any, any type of questions, whether it be medical or even on the behavioral health side, I am not going to have someone who has experience with that. I would have to go to a city in order to receive those services. And I think, you know, and especially in rural Idaho, the laws are going to dictate of how a provider is going to practice. Whereas you go to California and they're more progressive and they're going to have more providers who are able to provide that quality care for a transgender person. When I look at underserved in the bigger picture, that's how I see it. I think in the cultural sense though, I think we have an abundance of people with cultural knowledge of the things that we need to, to make us healthy or to keep us healthy. And that's traditional food, you know, going sweat, that's connecting with 
your grandparents or connecting within your family. And that's one thing that we have in abundance here. It, it's, it's so strong to just sit down and visit with family members and to learn and just to enjoy discussion, to share stories. I think that's something that's always been something that's helped us, that that's served us in our growth as a people. And some aren't as fortunate as others, but I think that we have such a strong sense of family that, that people will help out when needed. Aside from, you know, the medical aspect of being underserved, that's one thing that is also an area that's lacking, and especially in tribal communities. Historically, for the most part, not all tribes, but for the most part, the majority of tribes they held two-spirit people in high regard, and they, two-spirit people were name givers. They were matchmakers. They were carriers of, of the names of, um, of practices and just different things like that. They were sacred because they could see the world and, and through two eyes, through two points of view, the feminine and the masculine. And I think nowadays, because of these Western societal norms, like you look at a tribal code, something that is law on the reservation, and it doesn't have things on in there that talk about, you know, violence against two-spirit people. I am thankful that our reservation, we don't experience high rates of violence against two-spirit people, or maybe it's just not documented. But I know that through becoming one with my truth and learning and immersing myself in reading about the trans experience nationwide, transgender women of color have the highest rate of violence nationwide. And we're killed at an alarming rate because we're expressing who we are and who we know that we are. And it's because of people who are scared of change, who are scared of their masculinity being questioned. That's why they're killing trans women of color. And I think that for the most part, not just Idaho, but nationwide, that is something where I don't know if it's really a service area, but it's it's something that needs to be looked into, you know, like you said, at a federal level, because again, violence against trans women of color, the rate is very alarming. Aside from, you know, the medical aspect of being underserved, that's one thing that is also an area that's lacking, and especially in tribal communities. Historically, for the most part, not all tribes, but for the most part, the majority of tribes, they held two-spirit people in high regard, and they, two-spirit people were name givers. They were they were matchmakers. They were carriers of, of the names of, um, of practices and just different things like that. They were sacred because they could see the world and, and through two eyes, through two points of view, the feminine and the masculine. And I think nowadays, because of these Western societal norms that you see, like you look at a tribal code, something that is law on the reservation, and it doesn't have things in there that talk about violence against two-spirit people. I am thankful that our reservation, we don't experience high rates of violence against two-spirit people, or maybe it's just not documented. But I know that through, again, becoming one with my truth and learning and immersing myself in reading about the trans experience nationwide, transgender women of color have the highest rate of violence nationwide. And we're killed at an alarming rate because we're expressing who we are and who we know that we are. And it's because of people who are scared of change, who are scared 
scared of their masculinity being questioned. That's why they're killing trans women of color. And I think that that, for the most part, not just Idaho, but nationwide, that is something where I don't know if it's really a service area, but it's it's something that needs to be looked into, you know, like you said, at a federal level, because again, violence against trans women of color, it's it's very alarming. The, the rate is, it's very alarming. The way that you're approaching these questions too, in a way of like, this is the answer for people in general, and then this is the answer for the two-spirit community. And what you're helping me, helping me to identify is that there is a gap in the way that we acknowledge service provision for our trans relatives. And that I think is a learning edge that we need to push all the way up to the federal level as far as anti-violence work goes. While we talk about service provision and we talk about access to quality health care, we talk about having and creating services for our trans relatives and then women specifically, women and girls, like there's always these divisions in this work. One of the things I'm trying to address is how intersectional all of it is. I'm of the mindset that if we seek and empower liberation for the most marginalized in our communities, then the entire community is then liberated. And I think that's why I'm having these discussions about where you feel comfortable discussing victimization, who you seek out for medical services, for behavioral health services, where you find space for healing. All of those things are impactful when we're building solutions for the future, when we change the way this work is done in indigenous countries. So you, you bring up a really, really great point there. Do you feel that we are creating spaces in our community in which we can discuss victimization, whether that's domestic violence, intimate partner violence, lateral violence against each other, missing folks, murdered folks? Is there space in our community to have conversations openly and honestly about that? I think that we're definitely getting there. I think it was just kind of something that was, obviously it was a learned behavior, and I know it was because of colonization. Sweeping everything under the rug mentality what happens in this house stays in this house and you're not going to go and tell everyone our business because that's private and it's going to stay here but I think throughout years of, of healing and especially of younger people beginning to share their voice not in a rude or disrespectful manner but of a manner of maybe let's think about it in this view things that my grandparents learned in the school system is going to be completely different than what i learned and completely different from what my nieces and nephews are going to learn one thing that we're taught as native children is you know respect your elders and one of the last things that my grandma taught me before passing away in 2003 was that, you know, elders demand your respect, but what you also need to understand is they need to teach you respect. They need to show you respect in order for you to respect them. And so I think looking back at my grandma's teachings, I don't think that it's disrespectful to share your opinion with your elder because I think that's going to bring healing and build that foundation for those open discussions in our communities. I think that, you know, we're getting there, especially because we're in a digital era. I think now more than ever is, is the best time to utilize our youth and all of their strengths, you know, within social media or with technology of doing virtual storytelling. Just me personally, like I've tried to do things. I didn't really have a good turnout 
of trying to open that space, just kind of taking it upon myself to share my story, not only for my own healing, but for healing of other Two-Spirit people to ignite that flame inside of saying, you know, this is who you are and it's okay to be who you are. I feel that it was a start. And I feel that one thing, again, getting back to that mindset that a lot of our elders have of this is my business, we're gonna sweep everything under the rug. What happens in my house stays here. But I think what we need to do in order to get to that safe place of discussion is utilizing our behavioral health services on our reservations. Because if I didn't start therapy when I started, I don't know if I would even be here today. I, you know, my therapist was such a blessing to me. She didn't do the work for me. She made me do the work. Yes, it was very difficult at times. Yes, I didn't want to do the work sometimes, but through those years of therapy with her, she helped me develop tools to become my own therapist. And eventually it led me to embracing my transness, to embracing authenticity and to do it unapologetically. It is my hope to continue to share my story with hopes that yes, it does start these discussions, whether it is violence, whether it is sexual abuse, whether it is discrimination, just sharing that space as one and being respectful of each other. I think that we will get there. I honestly don't think we're there yet, but we are getting there. By this point in the series of podcasts, we're noticing that there are not only struggles with removing shame from seeking help and support, but these same struggles permeate into our mental health and wellness. Is there a way in our advocacy work to ensure that we are caring for families impacted by violence in a holistic way. Do we feed them? What do we feed them? Do we have spaciousness for rest? Do they have outlets for creativity? Do we refer them to counselors or support groups? What resources do we offer their children? The healthcare model of addressing singular issues is no longer successful or meaningful. We need to explore something much more encompassing, addressing and healing from violence in a community-centered way. Augie, in an earlier episode, talked to us about armies of women coming together in the face of tragedy or death in our communities. Atta speaks of story spaces and groups for two-spirit relatives. Bernie discusses group wellness too. None of these spaces center assessments or data collection. None of these spaces incorporate standard practices as we know them from Western academia. To serve the stated needs of a community, we have to first ask what the community's needs are. As providers, are you doing that? My first experience with therapy was actually at Nimipu Health with a behavioral health worker. I think she was a counselor. I'm not sure if she was a counselor or psychologist. The key thing for me, though, was that she had the cultural background knowledge, right? I didn't have to spend my time in my sessions teaching her about who I am culturally and racially. She understood. She had a baseline for it. And I think that was really what allowed me to engage with her in a very authentic way. Was that also your experience? I would be very frank with her because, you know, a lot of the discussions was talking about who we are as the people. And and I would even question her, like, well, you know, what do you think about our creation stories or our coyote stories or even about Christianity? How does that relate to your scientific educational background? She was very, very respectful. And, you know, she had been with Mimiku House for a couple years. So it wasn't like she had a lot of cultural knowledge, but she was very receptive of my identity. I was thankful for that. That's one thing that we do need to provide a little bit more education on for our, you know, our non-native providers is that at least meeting them halfway and providing them education, the cultural component, because they're going to be able to provide us better care that way. And so I think that is something that as far as the HR standpoint goes, something we could have improved on is educating them more thoroughly. 
In response to what education she'd offer our non-native partner agencies is poignant and relates directly to our thriving families theme of sovereignty and jurisdiction. Melanie Fillmore, our research contractor on the grant, wrote in her themes report, Every single listening session was undeniably clear the burden individuals and families carry navigating the complexities of sovereignty and jurisdictional issues. Each tribe has its own historical context for how settler colonialism has shaped the relationships developed between tribal authority, state authority, and federal authority. Going back to Otta's discussion, it is imperative for an advocate or an educator or a first responder to learn and understand the settler colonial relationship each indigenous community has. We cannot navigate current issues or violence nor innovate solutions and healing without first understanding the vast, complicated history of each nation. And I hope that the end goal for what we're doing now is, is exactly that. Providers, victim service providers, healthcare providers, even folks who are the first point of access in law enforcement agencies will have a cultural component. You know, then the question becomes like, well, who's responsible for educating all of these non-natives with all of their degrees from Western colonial institutions? You know, it's like we have to bear the burden of both being victimized and at the same time being the educator, which is kind of where I struggle in this work. Having been a survivor, now being an educator and an advocate, how much of this responsibility of educating these non-native folks to work in my community and work in such a way where they're not perpetuating or committing any further harm. So it's certainly something I struggle with. I hear you when you say, you know, we, we have the services better when they have the knowledge, you know, like that's absolutely true. If and when violence occurs in our community, do you feel like our community has the resources and the people to address it, to mitigate it, to alleviate harm and violence? Speaking for our community, I think that we do have all of the resources available. We have a lot more than we had years ago. I think it's through a lot of these grant programs like Women's Outreach. They have services that provide to women who who've experienced domestic violence or basically help them begin a plan to heal. And then I think that our law enforcement has expanded to something greater than it used to be. There are a lot more positions than just the police officers. And then I think that Nimipu Health, you know, behavioral health services, those have also expanded. So I think that all of, you know, we have a lot of resources that are readily available. I think that the underlying issue is there's kind of a stigma placed on just the word mental health. When you hear mental health on the reservation, you have that stigma that's saying, oh, well, if you have to go there, you're you're crazy or you're losing it. But I think what a lot of people fail to realize is that mental health is just as important as physical, as emotional, spiritual health. And I think that's kind of our downfall is something that it's not that the resources aren't there. It's that we're not seeking those resources every time something happens or maybe a family member is talking us out of it. You know, I'm not sure, but I think that Again, the resources are there. It's just a matter of, are we going to seek those resources? The first step is always the most difficult, especially because of the stigma and because the community is so small, right? We know what each other's cars look like and when they're parked outside of the clinic, you know, gossip mm-hmm. happens and then any number of what could seemingly be uh, HIPAA violations, etc. So I'm with you. I believe that we have the resources in the community. It's just a matter of like, how can we more courageously use those resources, integrate the cultural components into those resources so that we can find spaces for healing and for addressing the harm and for open, courageous conversations. So I agree. It's just a matter of destigmatizing it all for our community wellness, for all of us holistically, not just mental health and physical health. You're exactly right there.
You know, and in speaking to that, we do have several incredible providers, both in Lewiston, in, in the surrounding areas. If you were able to facilitate onboarding for non-Native service providers when it comes to victim services, what would you want them to know about working with Indigenous people, with the trans community, with Mimipu people? I think I would want to give them um, a, a thorough, a thorough presentation of this is who we were. This is what happened, giving them a timeline of all of the occurrences, of all the federal and policies that, that we were subjected to and how they impacted us. Because just through all of those enactments, they impacted us in so many ways. I look at, you know, my grandmother, she was born in March of 1924, and she didn't become a citizen, a U.S. citizen of her homeland until she was three months old. And so you have stories of those, of, you know, being born ward to this country, a country that, you know, is your homeland. And so I look at that and how my grandma could have interpreted that growing up. Like, well, I wasn't even a citizen, you know, when I was born. And that's just two generations ago for me. And so I think that our non-Native providers need to understand that a lot of our cultural norms now, today, are a result of the historical trauma that we've experienced. I think that non-natives probably, you know, see like a powwow, you know, they probably have experienced one of those public settings. And yes, those are great things. But I think that along with that, they also need to understand that not all of this powwow. It was the result of historical trauma. It was on my other side of the family. I had my great grandmother who was fluent in Nespers and she didn't teach any of her children it because she knew that I want you to learn English because I want you to have more and better opportunities. She interpreted it as that. And so there's so much division in our people. And I think that providing a, a thorough presentation of and, and hearing all voices of the Nimipu, sharing everyone's story and not just something that's cookie cutter, not something that this is how Apollo is done. This is how stick games done. This is the seasons that, you know, they, they would travel for their traditional food. I think sharing that is really important, but I think also sharing this is who we are now and we have high instances of alcoholism of drug abuse but then also the positive we have medical doctors we have attorneys we have educators if we're all inclusive and in sharing that story that will give them a better understanding of yes there are struggles but there's also hope and there's also success stories. Some may not be traditional, some may be traditional. Hearing voices of everyone is gonna give them a better understanding of how to provide services. And that part, that's the narrative shift I would really love for so much of our service provision to take on. That we're not a monolith, that not all Native Americans are the same, that not all Nimipu are the same, that I think what we're asking folks to do is really invest in the humanity of people. Because when you invest in every human by human by human, you're really getting a strong understanding of who they are and then who they are as a collective. And going back to the societal norms on a colonial, settler colonial landscape, nobody wants to take the time to do that. It's easier to put people in certain boxes, to label folks as certain things, to other folks, to black and white, to the false dichotomy that we're led to believe is appropriate by encouraging storytelling between people, between patient, between client and provider is absolutely going to change the way that we address violence in our community. So thank you so much for 
for saying that. I hope that by being vulnerable and sharing my story and continuing to do that, that I can inspire others, that I can help others in, in my community. And, and I even struggle this struggle with this to this day. As a trans woman of color, I know and I'm cognizant of my community being so over-sexualized that it's kind of hard to break free from that box that we've been placed in. We're over-sexualized and our stories aren't shed in a good light. During my initial years of embracing my transness, I'm glad that I was able to see people like Janet Mock, to see people like Kumu Hine, who is from Hawaii and she teaches her traditional hula and chant. And seeing trans women in that light of being intelligent, of being intellectual, of being vulnerable, using their platform in the same way you are to provide a better quality of life or hopes of a better quality of life. I'm so thankful for that. And I just hope that I can do the same for someone. And even if it's just one person, I know that one person is going to share their story with the same hopes of shedding positive light. Natives as a whole, our voice, it's not very loud in the sense of it's not heard at the same level as our non-Native relatives. And I think that as Native people taking opportunities like this, Yes, it may be kind of out of our comfort zone, but I think it's something that we really need to embrace, especially if it's going to impact our people. I hope we're hearing a theme here. Storytelling is healing. Community is healing. 